Hello, my name is James McDermott. I'm a writer, teacher and 26-year-old cisgendered man. As a gay man, I love men, but as a gay man, I dislike men too. As a camp man who talks and writes about his feelings, I have always questioned stereotypical masculine ideals. As stereotypical men aren't camp, don't talk about their feelings and certainly don't create plays and poems about them. As a 26-year-old, I feel I've learned and unlearned lots about being a man, but at 26, still have lots to learn and unlearn about being my own kind of man. In this podcast series, I will talk with several people to explore masculinity, try and work out why we love and hate men, whether there are such things as masculine ideals, how creativity can help men explore and express themselves, and what men still have to learn and unlearn about being their own kind of man. In this first episode, before I question anyone else about the masculinity, it seemed only right that I was questioned about mine. And so in episode two, I'm going to talk to a chap called Sam Roddock, who in this episode is going to talk to me first about my relationship with masculinity. So tell me about yourself, James. So I work as a playwright and poet, and um, my two main obsessions um, as a writer are uh, masculinity and sexuality. And aside from writing, I also work as a creative writing teacher in theatres and schools across East Anglia. And what was your influence for wanting to start this podcast? I think I've always had a strange relationship with masculinity because from a very young age, I knew uh, that I was more effeminate than stereotypical men are told we should be. And um, from earliest memories of being a person I remember being attracted to men and I was told that's a cardinal sin for a stereotypical man as well so from such a young age I've questioned um, my relationship with masculinity and certainly that idea of um, a man being natural and a certain type of man being natural I think I never feel more natural than when I am myself and when I'm with another man but certain types of men will always tell me that me being myself or being with a man is unnatural so I thought, well, if I feel natural, maybe I'm not wrong and maybe those stereotypes are. And um, I wanted to write about that for several years, which I've done in my own stuff. And I wanted to talk about it now um, with other men who will be older than me. I think lots of the people I'm going to talk to on this podcast are older than me because I think at 26, it's that interesting age where you're no longer kind of youthful, particularly, and you are kind of reaching that sense of um, adulthood and 30 where you should have some stuff worked out and I feel like I really really have I feel like I've unlearned a lot of stuff that I was raised with but I still have lots of baggage as we all do that I hope through talking with other men um, about that baggage of being a man and unpacking it together in a podcast um, we can get rid of the stuff that isn't useful anymore put back stuff that is useful and acquire new things from each other that might help us um, as well. That's a really interesting perspective moving away from a kind of dichotomy which is either toxic masculinity or just nothing to trying to get a sense of where the where the middle ground is between all of that absolutely i think grayson perry who is a man i uh, really really admire for so many reasons i think he's a great commentator on masculinity because um he is lots of his characteristics as he says by his own admission are stereotypically masculine he's very competitive he's into sport and racing and bikes um but he also dresses up as a young girl 
So I think he's a great outsider commentator on that. But he has this idea with therapy that um, therapy allows you to take all the tools out of the tool shed and only put back the tools that work. And I think this discussion of masculinity um, will hopefully do that f- uh, for me as well. I wanted to make the podcast to talk to other people and say, right, what about masculinity is positive? What about being this type of human is positive? Um, but then what isn't working for us and let's disregard stuff that is no longer useful yet. And that concept of authenticity that you talked about, that sense that you want to be you naturally. Um, and I don't know about you, but I find that it can be quite difficult to distinguish what is naturally me from what other stereotypes I live within. Um, and that is something that I'm really looking forward to hearing you explore over future episodes. I feel exactly the same here. Yeah, there's always an Oscar Wilde quote that stayed with me from as a very young age, just that to be natural is such a difficult pose to keep up. And I've always felt that, especially when I was closeted um, or feel like I'm in dangerous places to be as a camp gay man, which might be certain types of pubs or certain types of toxically masculine environments. I think you end up performing this idea of being natural. And I think so many men do that, especially in those public environments like bars or changing rooms, which often feel, feel to me as a playwright, like theatres, men are performing the characters of men. They've got their dialogue, they've got their script, they have to talk about certain things. Um, and I've always felt similarly when I'm in those environments, I'm not allowed to say certain things. I'm not allowed to go off script. Um, and I find that exhausting. So that idea of forgetting to play the role of a man and just be yourself is something that I've spent so many years trying to find by unlearning nonsense I've been taught that you have to be this kind of person, you have to be this kind of man, and this man has to behave like this. Um, I hope that in talking to lots of other men, uh, we will teach each other tools and techniques to help us kind of further develop that sense of shrugging off stereotypes and being ourselves, and in the hope that it can help listeners as well do similar things. So take me back to your childhood, to the the kind of you at six years old, the world you found yourself born into and having your first thoughts around your um, your earliest experiences and the messages you were receiving from society, from your family, from others about about masculinity, about being a man and about who you were. So I was born in Boston, in Lincolnshire, to uh, working class parents, to a dad um, from Manchester, who left home when he was 12 and left school at 12 as well and went to live on his own because he didn't get on with family. Uh, and he was never academic, uh, wasn't a reader or a writer, um, and yet taught me how to read and write, which I think is beautiful in hindsight. Uh, but he went to work on farms and worked as a milkman and worked in a cafe from about 12. And then my mum is from Nottingham, from working class family as well, uh, who wanted to be a writer, but her father wouldn't let her, so she became a nurse. So I was born in Lincolnshire to parents from Manchester and Nottingham, um, and then moved to Norfolk as a teenager. At six, I knew I was a boy, but I had no idea what that meant. Um, I was obsessed with the Spice Girls when I was six, and I had Spice Girls dolls and caps and trainers and did all the dance routines. And I remember my parents bought me kind of all the memorabilia without any question. I remember, I don't remember being shamed at six, for being a boy who liked to play with dolls and do dance routines. Uh, I remember one of my earliest memories of being a person is colouring my nails in a fountain pen in the garden and watching my brother drive past in a toy police car and thinking he was strange for wanting to be a policeman and wanting to be in a uniform and be like other people instead of wanting to be colourful with painted nails 
Um, in terms of messages I was receiving about masculinity, I think at that age, I really wasn't because all my heroes were uh, female at that age. I remember being so obsessed with Baby Spice, Emma Bunton in the Spice Girls and wanting to be pretty and talented like she was. I think the only male influences at that age were dad, um, who, whilst is stereotypically masculine in so many ways, was teaching me how to write and read and do magic and um, colour in. We did lots of colouring together and introduced me to glitter and all those things. Um, and I was obsessed with Frank Spencer from Some Mothers Do Have Them. I remember watching that on TV um, quite young and just finding him fascinating. So I was bought a beret and a tank top and would run around the garden pretending to be Frank Spencer. And I, looking back on that, I think it's one of those, as a kid, I think it spoke to my nascent sense of camp and being this other man. Um, but you can't articulate that at six, but you can spot it. I think there's that thing with when you're younger, you can spot things in cultural heroes that talk to something nascent in you. Even if you can't necessarily say, I am this, you can point at it in someone else. And I think that's what I had with Frank Spencer. Yeah, and of course, whenever we're thinking back to a six-year-old, we're always doing so from the perspective of today. It's it's never going to be anything other than a, a, a speculative reflection on how we were then through the prism of how we have been since and who we are now. So I wonder if you could move on, kind of stick, skip us ahead a decade, um, sort of mid-teens, early teens. At what point did you, I mean, you talked earlier about understanding that that you were that you were camp or gay from an early age um at what point did you did you have the language and the understanding of the social norms to start to articulate that to yourself i think i learnt about those words uh younger than 16 if i jump ahead 10 years i think i'd learnt about them um by the time i was about seven or eight because the thing with being camp and gay is you might not know you are those things, but other people might think they spot it in you and they will tell you who you are before you have had a chance to work it out. So other children at school were telling me things, not necessarily in a um, negative way, but they were calling me camp or they were saying you're gay. Um, and that was then internalised and filtered through my watching soap opera. I watched so much soap as a kid. Um and remember characters struggling with being those things. So I would hear someone call me gay at school, and then when I'd watch soaps at night, someone was struggling with being gay, and I thought, okay, well, that's what it is. They fancy men, and that's something you struggle with. Or um, someone would call me camp at school, and then I'd see someone camp in a soap opera like Sean in Coronation Street, and he would be, sometimes he'd be teased or mocked for being camp, and I thought, okay, this thing I am, TV is now telling me that's something to be ridiculed. So I think... I was learning that to be camp and to be gay from the culture was something uh, that you struggled with and something that might be ridiculous to some people. Um, and then by the time I was 16, I'd internalised lots of that stuff. And because we didn't study any gay history or gay literature at school, I felt really, really invisible. Um, and thought, OK, well, if no gay people clearly aren't visible then, um, if no one's out and I'm not learning any, uh, learning about any history or seeing any role models, this is something I need to quash. Um, so I did. I kept quiet about my sexuality till I was 18. Um, when I had the campist coming out, really, I was just sat in my room at 18 and I was listening to Eva Cassidy. And mum came in and said, oh, is something wrong? And um, Eva Cassidy's True Colours was playing at the time. And I didn't say anything, but the song said everything. And mum just kind of said to me, OK, um, don't tell dad. 
and she did and eventually here we are we're fine with it but I remember the seeds of me learning about my campness and my uh, gayness were from other people as kids um, and then TV told me what those things might mean and that med- led me to have this belief that I needed to hide because I wasn't seeing any men like me um, in the things I was studying at school. In that context, how do you possibly come to understand yourself as you really are? What were the, what were the, I guess, the shoots of, of self-identity, the moments when you did feel yourself? I think they came really late to me. And maybe they came in my 20s, actually. I think uh, because I was learning from um, homophobic culture, that to be gay is to be wrong. I would try and close down all my feelings. And um, instead of allowing myself to fancy people, I would become obsessed with TV shows instead of people. So I was obsessed with Doctor Who as a teenager. And looking back on that now and writing about that a lot, I think that has something to do with the idea that like Doctor Who, I looked like a human, but inside I felt completely alien because of what the world was telling me. Um, And I felt really small, but felt bigger on the inside. There was that kind of link to the TARDIS there as well. So I think all my feelings I shot down because I thought I have to hide these. I can't be this kind of person. And all that passion that would go into relationships with sexual exploration went into writing and went into obsession with culture. And I think only when I went to uni at 18 um, and was away from culture and family and school and all those younger versions of myself that I'd been, um, could I actually say, right, all these things have been masks. Stop trying to be Doctor Who um, and just tr- find out what's underneath. And other people did that. Other gay people helped me do that. And I think I learnt my identity from other gay people. I think that's how you do it. If you're not seeing yourself reflected in history or science or literature, um, you have to kind of meet other gay people who will teach you things school should have taught you, like how to love yourself and how to love each other and what your history is. Wow, there's a huge amount there. And I'm interested, how much did your identity as gay differ or not from your identity as a young man? I think uh, because I've been raised with that idea that men have to be a certain way that was completely um, different to what I was, I again didn't feel like a man, I felt like an alien. Um, hence that interest in Doctor Who. And then when I got to uni and started going to pubs and would encounter bigots socially, um, one of their retorts would always be, well, you're not a man. And that would, again, that was like people telling me at school that, oh, you're gay, you're camp. People were telling me you're not something. Um, because I wasn't a builder or because I wasn't a bully or because I wasn't a drinker of pints, or whatever it was, they were telling me I wasn't something. Um, So I had to work out that... I think that led me to believe, actually, I'm not, and I don't want to be a man. I want to identify as a human, and we're all mammals, and this idea of gender is a story that we tell ourselves and that we perform. I think I've never felt like a man in that sense, um, because other people have told me I I wasn't, Um, which is another reason I wanted to make the podcast to talk about people's masculinity and said, okay, how do you feel like a man? What am I supposed to feel like? Because the world has always made me feel like I'm not because I'm not that archetype. I'm not that stereotype. And that led me intellectually to think of myself more as a human and um, really fall in love with nature and all those kind of things. And hence why I live in Norfolk, that idea of I'm a human animal, I'm a mammal. I've always kind of identified with that more than this idea of being a man. Um, But I think that sits alongside 
me getting older and thinking, actually, I feel far braver and stronger and more stereotypically masculine by being myself in a world where I could get verbally or physically abused daily, arrested or killed in certain parts of the world for being me. I think that stereotypically has far more strength to it than someone um, playing in sand all day as a builder or getting pissed in pubs um, and having a fight. I think there's far more archetypal, stereotypical strength um, in living loudly and proudly as a queer person. Absolutely. And before we come on to that kind of what sounds like it's been an incredible journey and progression from the identity you had at 16 to the identity you have today, I'm just interested in, you know, you just mentioned back there the perspectives on being a man which were all negative for you. I'm wondering whether there were any perspectives that you felt you had or in men you saw around you in that teenage years that felt positive that you wanted to emulate. I think as I got older and went to uh, uni, I was introduced to lots of queer writers um, who were male identifying as well and they became role models I think until I found those queer figures until I found men who were gay um at university and in books um that I'd found myself at university or in Russell T Davis's tv shows um I didn't have any male role models other than those kind of campy figures that I'd spotted as a kid and emulated people like Frank Spencer as I said earlier or Kenneth Williams when I was a bit older um people who were men but also more clowns than men I think they were my heroes as a kid and then at university, studying modules in um, script writing and English degree about queer literature and suddenly meeting men who were talking about queer desire or same-sex attraction or their difficulties with uh, masculinity. Suddenly then I found heroes who were literary. But in terms of uh, real men in my life, um, people who aren't either fictional characters or writers who I've never met, um, I really don't think I've had any direct male role models. I think all the strongest influences directly in my life have been uh, female, like strong women like my mother um, or certain teachers. Um, That said, there are several artistic mentors I've had, kind of people who have taught me how to write and um, several people who run venues in Norwich, um, like Pasco, Q. Kevlin at the Art Centre, who... uh, I've had similar journeys with their masculinity, if he doesn't mind me saying so, in that sense of not being something he thought he should be or his father wanted him to be and working in an arena which is um, deemed kind of non-stereotypically masculine. I think they've taught me to be brave enough to be myself and um, reinstated that idea that to some extent masculinity is a performance and uh, first and foremost you are human and then you're a man or then you're female, whatever it is. I think that's where my thinking's gone. So thinking about about that divorce from your identity as a man and the difficulty with that male identity and the way that you have described as feeling inspired by, influenced by, and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but safer with women, how did that influence how you saw and interacted with women? I think um, that sense of everything I'd had to hide when I was in the presence of a certain type of man or um, who I I told myself a certain type of man. I think the older I've got, the more I've realised that lots of the demons are in my head and that most men are very pleasant when I talk to them um, or confronted them about their 
um, prejudices if they voice them to me. But I think with women, I've always felt that I can um, not perform being a man and just be myself, which tends to be a more effeminate, cheeky, flirty person. Um, and so I felt kind of unleashed a little bit and far more freer in female company. Um, and it felt like a place where I could talk about uh, an attraction to men and I could share that with them. Um, and the older I've got and the more seriously I've um, befriended people, I think it's that sense that uh, as a camp gay man and as a woman in a world um, that's very patriarchally structured, we're both often falling victim to a certain type of masculinity and both ridiculed or objectified by a certain type of masculinity. So I think those connections really um, drew me to their company um, and their companionship. I, I so relate to that, um, to what you just said, you know, that the, lots of the demons are in your head regarding your relationship with men and your relationship with masculinity. And that's one of the things that I'm really interested in in this journey that you're going to take is to understand how and why so many of those so many men kind of get and people you know so many humans have those um demons in their head about what masculinity is and what being a man is and how negative some of those connotations can be and i'm interested in how whether you felt you denied or pushed down your being a man to try and fit within those that construct or whether it, you actually felt like embracing the, the feminine in you and in the world was the authentic expression of yourself i never tried to uh embrace masculinity or try and be a stereotypical man and just hearing you say that that's never even occurred to me it's staggering, isn't it? That you, even if you grow up and you'll think the first thing you want to do if you don't fit in is try and fit in. I never did. I never tried to like a certain sport or dress a certain way or talk in a certain way. Um, I think what I did was, at first, as a kid, I wouldn't talk at all. I would just kind of um, live in books and my closest friends were sitcom characters. I would just watch loads of sitcoms. And then as a teenager, when I started realising actually... I am a camp gay man. That's what I am. Um, and I was seeing the likes of Judy and Clary on television, or I was seeing the likes of Alan Carr. I would then perform campness um, as a way of kind of trying on a character in the hope of finding my own. And as a way of um, almost like a march against those people who were calling me things. I thought, actually, you're saying I am something, so I'm going to be that thing. Um and it became a march against dad who was telling me to walk and not mince. And I thought, actually, that mince is going to be a march and I'm going to own it. Um, and I'm going to perform sass and perform camp. Um, and then as I got older, I found that exhausting. I think linking to that idea of authenticity, I find it very, very difficult to socialise with people now who I can instantly tell aren't being themselves because I always have that thing. I spent 18 years lying about myself, so I know how exhausting it is. And I got like that when I went to uni. I thought, actually you're not this outrageous, you're not that camp, um, find out who you are. And that meant just talking to people. And I, going back to that idea that the demons are in our head, uh, I think as a culture, we don't really talk. We, we, we talk with our thumbs now a lot. Um, 
And this is why I love playwriting. I think it's all about people solving problems through conversation. And uh, if we did talk, we'd realise how ridiculous so many things are that we live by. That idea that instead of talking, so many men would rather take their lives than say there's going through problems. That idea that suicide is the biggest killer of men under 40. I think so much of that is because we're taught to be silent. Because if you do talk out about your feelings and someone's going to talk out and call you queer or a sissy, I think that culture of fear, we internalise that so much. Um, and I, it sounds very, very conspiracy theorist, but I think so much of it comes down to capitalism. I think if we weren't divided into uh, men and women who have to behave certain ways and talk in certain ways and weren't just mammals, we'd never buy crap. We'd never buy certain coloured clothes or um, certain products. The one thing we can't be for capitalism to work is happy, or else we wouldn't buy stuff to fill us up. So it feels so political and so constructed that we don't really talk as much as we should. And playwriting, I found playwriting as that way of talking about things. And at first, talking about other people, talking about myself through other people, because I wasn't brave enough to kind of take up space and talk about myself. And then performance poetry came late in that sense of actually now I'm going to stand on stage, not hide behind characters as I did when I was in the closet, but just talk truthfully. And the the more I've worked out about myself and the less I think actually I, I need to take up space, I don't really fancy that anymore. Um, the more I'm drawn to podcasts as a mode of communication, that sense of the disembodied voice, chatting to someone else, having a conversation, um, which is why I wanted to make this show really. Again, that that idea that you've just expressed of playwriting as people solving things through conversation is is a gorgeous one. And you also mentioned taking up space and... I think that kind of brings us to where you are now, which feels to me listening to you that you're much more comfortable in taking up your space, whatever that might be, and however that relates to the world around you. What I'm really interested in, what have been the the moments of change for you? I think um, inadvertently it's been queer writers people like russell t davis jonathan harvey um poets like aaron smith and dean atter i think uh they've shown me that as a gay person you can have a voice and you're they've shown me that i'm not invisible i think that's what it comes down to as a kid you felt invisible um and so you couldn't take up space and then as i've got older people have made homosexuality visible um and so i thought okay well you can and you have to um so I think inadvertently it's been reading and writing and queer heroes that have taught me I can take up space. In terms of those pivotal real-life people I've had kind of contact with, um, one of the biggest moments of change for me happened last year. Uh, until then, um, I had this... I'd internalised that idea that you're taught by homophobes and homophobic culture, that gay men... Um, only have sexual relationships with each other. And last year I dated someone um, who the relationship didn't last, but I got so much from it in that sense. Uh, we've stayed very good friends and they've taught me that relationships with gay men aren't solely physical. And I met my now best friend last year as well, a chap called Mark. Um, and when I first started um, socialising with him, as what happened with so many straight friends before him is I thought I fancied him because I'd been taught again by culture that um, 
men are sort of obsessed with sex and that's all they want from each other. And I found it really difficult to accept that Mark didn't want to sleep with me um, or didn't want work from me. I think I put so much of my self-worth in my writing. Um, and he didn't care about either of those things. He just wanted my company for me as a person. And initially, I found that very, very confusing, and that it was just his way of playing coy about fancying me. And then I realised, oh my God, he's right. He really does just like me. Um, and realising that took, uh, kind of instantly freed me up into being uh, less obsessed with shouting about writing or being less obsessed with identifying loudly as a gay person I think when you're younger you really want that label I really wanted to say I'm gay because it took me 18 years to say two words I thought I'm going to own them and then the older I've got I thought actually they come with so much political and social and cultural weight that I can feel really really squashed by them but I now just want to say I'm James and I'm James now before I'm a writer whereas when I was younger I was a writer because all my self-worth went into that until I met Mark um, who wanted my friendship and didn't want me because I was a man or didn't want me because I was gay or didn't want me because I was a writer. He just wanted me as a human. And I think that's where I'm at now, just kind of being um, more comfortable without any label, being more comfortable as a human and um, being being brave enough to be myself. I think that's when I teach. That's what I say to kids all the time. If they ask for any advice, I'm always reluctant to give anyone any advice at 26. It feels incredibly arrogant, but that sense of the best advice anyone's given me is be brave enough to be yourself and um, what people think of you is none of your business. I just love that. I think you can't change people's minds, but you can change your attitudes. Um, So if people think badly of you, it's none of your business, so don't fret about it. That's an absolutely stunning reflection to to end on. James McDermott, human being, thank you. Thank you, Sam. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you for listening. This has been Mantor, the Masculinity Conversations, brought to you by me, James McDermott, and Story Machine Productions, with music by Jordan Mallory Skinner and produced by Sam Ruddock. We're keen to talk to anyone who wants to share their experience of masculinity. If you would like to be featured in a forthcoming episode, drop us a line at storymachineproductions at gmail.com.